By now, I hope you've heard that we've launched my new supplement line, Adapt Naturals, a few weeks ago. We started with a daily stack of five products, the Core Plus bundle, designed to add back in what the modern world has crowded out and help you feel and perform your best. We've had so much amazing feedback already about the supplements. I'm glad to see that people are so excited to finally have a clear supplementation plan that they can trust and feel confident that they're getting exactly what they need each day to promote optimal health and longevity. We've also received some great questions about the products over the past few weeks, like how and when to take them for best results, how they might interact with other supplements, who they're appropriate for, and who they might not be a good fit for. So I decided to hold a Q&A to answer the questions we've already received and any questions you might have. Everyone's welcome to join, both people that have already purchased the Core Plus bundle and those who are interested in learning more about it. The Q&A is on Thursday, August 11th at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern. We'll send out a recording, so go ahead and register even if you can't attend live. On the registration page, there will be a link to the forum where you can submit questions in advance. Just head over to cresser.co slash core plus questions, all one word, to register. That's cresser.co slash C-O-R-E-P-L-U-S questions, all one word. Hope to see you there. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. The focus of this show and of my work in general for the last 15 years has been on how to prevent and reverse chronic disease and pain, and in particular, how to address the root cause of the problem so that you can fully recover and not end up just uh, suppressing symptoms with drugs or you know putting band-aids on the issue. This is still a worthy and important goal, and it's still a primary focus for me. But having said that, I have learned over many years of both my own struggle with chronic illness and now treating thousands of patients who've dealt with chronic illness and training thousands of healthcare professionals around the world who are also helping to support people with chronic illness that there's a lot more to it than we might imagine on the surface. Uh, When you're dealing with any kind of challenge like pain or illness, generally the healing process takes time and we still need to figure out in those circumstances how to live our best life while we we are continuing to deal with those problems. Also, the truth is that it's not always possible to identify or address the root cause of a health problem and fully reverse that condition. So let me give you a few examples. The most obvious level, let's say somebody gets into a a really horrible car accident and shatters their leg. I think in that case, the expectation would likely not be that they're going to recover the full use of their leg to, to the extent that they had before that devastating accident. The expectation might be in that scenario that they're going to do everything they can to restore as much function as possible but because of how many places you know that they broke their leg in or or how severe that accident was and the damage from the accident was that there's a recognition that they may never fully recover 
100% of the function of their leg. And in that case, the focus would be on regaining as much function as possible and living as happy and um, joyful of a life as possible within those circumstances. It gets a bit murkier in the case of chronic illness because in many situations, there's at least the possibility that we might be able to figure out the root cause or causes and address those and fully recover. But with many conditions like autoimmune conditions, at least as we understand them right now, once the body starts producing antibodies to a particular tissue, it doesn't ever fully stop that. Certainly, there are many steps we can take, which we've talked about a lot on this show, that can reduce the immune system's attack against self-tissue and can even lead to complete remission in some cases. But generally, if you stop doing those things, you know, stop eating a healthy diet, stop taking care of yourself, uh, stop getting enough sleep, stop managing your stress, then the immune attack will resume and so will the symptoms and the impacts of that attack. So we, it's not really a, a, a cure in the sense that, you know, we, we take some steps and, and then it goes away entirely and we never have to think about it or worry about it again. It's more of a process of management or engagement when we are continually taking steps moment by moment to improve our health and well-being. And we have learned to live in a kind of symbiotic relationship with that condition over time. So in many of these cases, and there's, there's really a spectrum um, going from a relatively simple and straightforward condition that has a clear root cause that can be clearly addressed all the way to the other end of the spectrum with a very complex, significant condition that's mysterious with no a clear identifiable root cause and, and or a root cause that may be identifiable but can't be addressed. So all of us are on that spectrum somewhere if we're dealing with a health issue. And I think it's really important to have this conversation of how do we, how do we live with that? How do we approach ourselves and um, our healing process wherever we are on that spectrum? The other thing is that as the COVID pandemic showed us, no matter how much attention we pay to our own health and well-being, things can happen that are totally outside of our control. So we may not be dealing with a chronic illness or pain, but maybe we're struggling with other difficult circumstances, perhaps related to the pandemic um, or not, like loss of employment, in the effects of inflation, rising housing costs, grief over lost loved ones, uh, feeling stuck in a challenging relationship, etc. And the process that I'm going to talk about in this show for working with a difficult issue applies to those challenges as well. It's not limited to a, a health-related challenge or a, you know chronic pain, but some of these same perspectives and practices and tools that I'm going to discuss can be applied uh, in, in any situation where we're, we feel stuck or we're dealing with some kind of challenge in, in our life. And in this show particularly, I want to focus on 
how we find joy and live our best lives even in the midst of difficult circumstances like chronic illness, like chronic pain, but not limited to those issues. And that doesn't mean that we can't continue to work to improve our circumstances and to heal chronic illness and to relieve chronic pain or to change the conditions that are leading to us feeling stuck. But it does mean that we don't stop living or give up our right to thrive and flourish even in the midst of those challenges. So that's the topic of the show today. Hope you enjoy it and let's dive in. Okay, so the first concept that I want to speak about is that health is more than simply the absence of symptoms or disease. It's always struck me that we don't really have a clear definition of what health is uh, in our culture. Um, certainly, I never saw a clear definition of health when I was a student studying medicine. There were lots of definitions of diseases and disease states and syndromes and things like that, but never a clear definition of what health really is. And I've asked a lot of people this uh, in my life over the years, and you know, the responses really vary. Some people, it's something like, I don't know how to explain it, but I know it when I feel it or I know it when I see it. Other people do tend to define it as, you know, just feeling great all the time and never having any symptoms, not having a disease. And still others define it in a much broader context. And over the course of my career, I think I have definitely uh, now find myself in the camp of those who define it in a broader context because the problem with defining health as simply the absence of symptoms or disease is that that definition doesn't really take our full human experience into account. So, for example, let's say you are a person who has an autoimmune condition and you still struggle with symptoms uh, from that condition occasionally, maybe disrupted sleep or exercise intolerance or occasional digestive issues or occasional fatigue. You know, maybe you have to watch how much activity you do. If you overdo it, you get, you get you know, more tired than you'd like. Uh, you have a range of symptoms that you deal with. And, you know, through your diet and lifestyle changes, you've been largely able to manage uh, that condition and let's say you have really rewarding and meaningful work uh, you have great family life um, you're in a happy partnership you have kids that you love um, you're active in your local community you have um, physical activities or hobbies that you enjoy or creative pursuits that you love and you just love your life. You're really thriving and flourishing as a human being. It would be difficult for me, at least in that situation, to look at that person and say that they're not healthy. Likewise, on the other end of that spectrum, you could have someone who is free of any symptoms and doesn't have any diseases or syndromes or anything like that, but they're a total wreck in many other areas of their life. They're maybe uh, have terrible relationships or not many rela relationships at all. They're they're not happy 
with their work or their life in other ways. Um, maybe they're dealing with substance abuse or addiction. There, there's so many other ways that that a person can struggle and suffer that aren't related to you know physical or or mental health symptoms or diseases or conditions. And that person, we may not think of that person as as being healthy or well. So those are maybe extreme examples, but in my work with patients over the years and just in my own pursuit and thinking about this, I certainly have seen that, you know, again, most people fall somewhere on that spectrum. And I've also just in my, in my research and writing, um, learning of so many remarkable people, you know, famous historical figures, scientists, politicians, musicians, artists, inventors, you know, people from all different walks of lives, life and backgrounds who have accomplished incredible things in their life, so much so that, you know, we're still talking about them hundreds or even thousands of years later in some cases. And there are historical records that tell us that many of these people struggled with sometimes very significant health challenges and diseases and conditions, um, which were sometimes known and sometimes not understood or not not uh, defined very well. And yet they went on to live a remarkable life and make a huge contribution to humanity and um, their people that we know and love and recognize today. And that's not just true of historical figures, that's true of many contemporary figures, entrepreneurs, artists, actors, musicians, etc. I'm sure many of you who are listening have know of people um, that you admire that also have uh, have or still do deal with you know, some kind of chronic health challenge. And yet, they appear to be living really uh, fulfilling and rewarding life. So over time, I have come to understand health as a much broader process, and I'll, I'll come back to that word in a moment, than just a simple definition like the absence of, of symptoms or disease. And even after all this time, I still myself don't have a really clear definition of what health is, despite thinking about it a lot more than the average person, I think. But I will offer one definition that I like a lot. Um, I don't know if it's the definition, but you may have heard me say it before. It's from Moshe Feldenkrais, who was the founder of the Feldenkrais method uh, of a kind of somatic education and neurological reprogramming, very sophisticated body of work that's really hard to explain, especially for non-practitioners like myself. But he said, true health is the ability to live your dreams. And I think that gets closer than just about any other definition that I've heard because it gets at what we've been talking about so far, which is, you know, it doesn't refer necessarily to a state or, or of being in the body that is transitory, you know, like um, if you're free of symptoms or disease, is that right now? Is it for, for the, today? Is it for the last two weeks? Is it for the next two weeks? It doesn't, re it, it, it's not referring to 
a transitory temporary state that could change. It's referring to our capacity to inhabit our full humanity and realize our potential. And I think for most of us, that ultimately is what we're most interested in. If we were able to live a life where we felt like we lived our dreams and and fulfilled our full potential, I think we'd all agree that that would be a very satisfying and rewarding life, even if we were dealing with some some symptoms or even a disease during that lifetime. Conversely, if we live our full life without achieving that and we're in good health for most of our life, we we may feel like something was missing. So I don't know. I'm going to leave it there. Um, as we move on to the next topic, I, I largely just am interested in the question more than the answer. What is health? What does it mean to you? It might mean something different for to you than it means for me. And that's that's totally appropriate and great. Um, and I would just invite you to think about what it means for you. And especially if you're someone who is struggling with a chronic condition, a pain or illness, what does health mean to you? How can you find health and wellness even in the context of, of that uh, chronic health challenge? So this, this leads me to the next concept that I want to discuss, which is that health is a process rather than an outcome. So it's easy to make the assumption that health or well-being is is an outcome that we arrive at once some conditions or circumstances have have been met so an example my own from my own life would be when i got really sick in my early 20s after traveling of course naturally and appropriately my all of my focus was regain my health to eliminate those symptoms that i had and and get rid of the the disease condition that I was dealing with and get back to my life as I was as I experienced it before I got sick. But over time, I came to understand that that way of looking at health as as an outcome that we arrive at after at some point after we do a bunch of different stuff or various things happen is at least incomplete if not just inaccurate. And the reason is that when we look at health as a process, we begin to understand that the choices we make on a moment-to-moment basis and where we put our attention on a moment-to-moment basis is what primarily determines our health or, put another way, our experience, rather than, you know, some idea of where we might get to once you know we get rid of our symptoms or we're able to deal with the disease or condition that we're facing one of my teachers sherry huber said the quality of our experience is determined by the focus of our attention the quality of our experience is determined by the focus of our attention so if our attention is constantly on what's missing what's lacking what's broken what we need to do to fix those things that creates an experience of not enough, not okay, not well, not healthy. And it's easy to understand how that happens when we're in a painful uh, or difficult situation 
whether again, that's a chronic illness or some other circumstance in life. And it's quite natural to assume that we can't be healthy or well until those circumstances change. But my own experience in my work with patients, as well as the experience of people who are a lot wiser than me, suggests that that is not necessarily true. For example, uh, Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychiatrist who was put in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II, you know, it's hard to imagine a more difficult circumstance to be in than that, uh, said that our perspective on life's events, what we make of them, matters as much or more than what actually befalls us. He also said, when we're no longer able to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. So what he's pointing at is that the way that we relate to our circumstances, um, chronic illness, pain, or something else, is as important, if not more important, than the circumstances themselves. And that, that's a major shift in awareness and in consciousness. And it leads to a really different relationship with ourselves and, and the world around us um, when we are dealing with challenging conditions. So I want to be clear here. I'm not glorifying suffering or pain. I'm not suggesting that we don't work hard to alleviate it however and whenever we can. I still think that is very important and will just, you know, is it should always be a part of the process to the extent that that's possible. But I am suggesting that we do have a choice in how we relate to the circumstances of our life and where we put our attention will have a huge impact in our experience, which is to say our health and our well-being from moment to moment. When we understand health and well-being as a process rather than an outcome, that actually does lead to different choices. We might choose to do things, for example, that aren't clearly connected to changing or fixing our problem, at least on the surface, but that do contribute to the moment-to-moment -moment process or experience of health. So let me give you an example that actually would often come up when I would talk to patients in my practice. So, you know, I would often have patients with very complex chronic health conditions. That was basically my typical patient for many, many years. And understandably, um, those patients were really intent on figuring out the cause of their condition and what they could do to address it. And so what would often happen, um, what they would report to me is that they would spend almost every waking moment trying to figure that out. So that might be, you know, researching on the internet to find articles or forums or other people who are dealing with a similar condition and, you know, who might be able to offer some insight into what's going on. It might mean, you know, working with many, many different practitioners, if, you know, starting with one practitioner and after a few appointments, if they don't make progress going on to the next one, you know, their, almost their entire life would be consumed by this process of trying to figure it out and address the root cause. And I know that process. <laughs> I know that relationship because I, I was there myself um, in the earlier part of my chronic illness. And I know how all-consuming it can be. And the problem with that is that in this belief that 
health is something I will arrive at at some point if I can just change the conditions. All of my energy goes into that process rather than the things that would actually contribute to an experience of health and well-being moment by moment. So something like um, doing things to elevate our mood or cultivating pleasure, seeking social connection, spending time outdoors in nature, etc. Um, those are the things that really like make life feel like it's worth living and contribute value um, and, and make us feel alive. But if we're spending all of our time thinking about researching, exploring, you know, focusing on how we're going to get better at some future time point, then we miss those opportunities. And, you know, that was a lesson that took me many years to learn um, because I'm stubborn and I was kind of doggedly fixated on uh, just one perspective or one idea about what health means. But as I did learn that over time and as I was able to help patients to kind of zoom out and broaden their perspective, I found that many people, including myself, experienced a lot more joy and pleasure and happiness even in the midst of whatever they were dealing with um, when they were able to understand health and, and well-being as a process uh, rather than an outcome. So the next concept here that I think is helpful is one that I've talked a little bit before, about before on the podcast. And I don't, I'm still looking for a good term or a good way to talk about it, but um, the, uh, right now I'm, I'm using the term pleiotropy versus root cause. And I, I just kind of alluded to this a few times in the last section, but one of the core principles of functional medicine is getting to the root cause of a health problem so we can address it rather than just suppressing symptoms. That's, that's just like the basic functional medicine canon, right? An uh, example of this would be if you're having a lot of gut and skin symptoms and then you get tested and find out you have celiac disease, that, that information will, of course, be invaluable in helping you to figure out what's going on and to make a plan. So trying to identify the root cause of a condition and address it should always be a goal. But having said that, the reality is that it's not always possible to identify or address the root cause of a disease. And if we only focus our attention there, we can miss out on the other possibilities that lead to better health and well-being. And that is what the cognitive psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker calls root causism. But Pinker is not he doesn't write about health he wasn't thinking about health when he coined that term he was actually referring to how we approach solving complex societal problems um, i'm going to read you a quote from his book enlightenment now where where i came across this term quote this version of historical pessimism may be called root causism the pseudo profound idea that every social ill is a symptom of some deep moral sickness and can never be mitigated by simplistic treatments which fail to cure the gangrene at the core. The problem with root causism is not that real-world problems are simple, but the opposite. They are more complex than a typical root cause theory allows. And then he goes on, quote, So complex, in fact, that treating the symptoms may be the best way of dealing with the problem because it does not require omniscience about the intricate tissue of actual causes. Indeed, by seeing 
What really does reduce the symptoms, one can test hypotheses about the causes rather than just assuming them to be true. So when I first came across this passage, as I've noted before, it was it was one of those light bulb aha moments. Um, I I remember still distinctly where I was when I read that passage and I put the book down and took a very long walk in the woods near my house where I was living at the time. Because as a functional medicine clinician, the idea of addressing root causes was, was and still is at the core of my belief system um, for the most part and, and certainly was at the core of my approach to treating patients. Those passages opened my eyes to the possibility that that is not always the best lens to, to see through, when, especially when we're dealing with really complex problems. The societal issues and that Pinker was talking about in chronic disease are not the same, of course, but they are both complex, multifactorial, and systemic phenomena. And while root causes always do exist, they aren't always easily identifiable or addressable, even if we can't identify them, as I mentioned earlier. So if that's the case, what is the alternative to an exclusive focus on root cause? As I mentioned, I'm still trying to find the best word, but the, the one that gets closest that I'm aware of now is pleiotropy. <laughs> um, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's accurate. It's a term that is typically used in the context of medications and genetics. It's usually defined as the production of diverse physiological or psychological effects by a single drug or gene. So an example of this would be like a drug like metformin, which is typically used to lower blood sugar, but it's also been shown to have anti-cancer effects and maybe even extends lifespan. In this sense, I'm talking about pleiotropy more generally as any intervention that has multiple and diverse effects on us. So examples would include diet, because when you eat a healthy diet, it doesn't just improve one thing, it improves many things. Same for exercise, stress management, uh, adjunctive therapies like infrared sauna or cold thermogenesis or pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. Um, these are all pleiotropic interventions because they have numerous effects across many different systems of the body and the mind. But we could also include things like shifting from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, cultivating more pleasure and joy in our life, building resilience, embracing positive psychology, improving our relationships, etc. All of those kinds of interventions have pleiotropic effects, not just one single benefit, but many, many different benefits. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, to build muscle, and to recover faster. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want more energy, lean muscle, and faster recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on subscriptions and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T 
K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser. So imagine a scenario where someone's feeling tired. A hundred percent focus on root cause might be to do a full blood panel and run a bunch of other tests to find the source of that fatigue. Is it B12 deficiency? Is it a hormone imbalance? Is it mercury toxicity? Maybe some of those, maybe none of those. Maybe, I don't know. On the other hand, an exclusively pleiotropic approach would be, okay, I'm tired, so I'm going to you know, clean up my diet a little bit because I noticed it's been slipping lately. I'm going to get to bed earlier because I've been you know, getting a little bit less sleep. I'm going to do some PEMF or sauna sessions in the afternoon. I'm going to cut down on coffee. And, and maybe I'll take some supplements that are generally designed to improve health and energy. And in that more pleiotropic approach, there's really no, I mean, there is some investigation or some exploration of root causes, assumption that it might have something to do with diet and sleep. But that's kind of a, a light or secondary theme. And it's really about engaging in interventions that we would assume will help with energy and a bunch of other things on top of that. But here's the crucial point. Both approaches could get to the same goal, improved energy, regardless of the underlying cause. If it's a B12 deficiency, cleaning up the diet could help with that. If it's a hormone imbalance, diet, and also stress management, PEMF and sauna and more sleep could help. Even with mercury toxicity, doing things like more exercise, PEMF and sauna, a really healthy diet with detox supportive nutrients, getting more sleep, all of that would help. They might, you know, it might not be enough on its own, especially for severe mercury toxicity, but it would certainly help. So the crux of this is that over time, I have come to see that the best approach is generally a mix of root cause and pleiotropy. But the reason I'm even talking about this at all is that I've seen a lot of people that I've worked with over time get I think unhealthily focused on root cause at the expense of pleiotropy. So going back to the example I used before, if you have someone who has you know, a complex and mysterious chronic illness, they could literally spend all of their time just trying to figure out what the root cause is and address those root causes. And I have seen that in patients that I've worked with. Um, so for example, after dinner, say, uh, someone has a couple hours of free time after they've cleaned up, maybe got kid kids to bed or something like that. What are you going to do with those couple hours of time? You could spend all of that time on the internet researching, looking in forums and you know social media, figuring out what is working or not working for other people, researching new doctor that you might want to see. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's certainly a time and a place for that as well. But if that is always the choice, instead of maybe going for a walk with your partner, uh, spending some time outside, you know, playing with your pets, um, picking up a musical instrument, writing in your journal, reading a book that you, you know, really enjoy, watching a funny movie, um, those are the pleiotropic interventions that are likely to contribute to that moment-by-moment -moment experience of health and wellness, even in the midst of whatever chronic 
condition symptoms are present. And the really interesting piece of this is, is that there's a possibility that you reach the same place that you wanted to reach by addressing the root cause by just taking that pleiotropic route. That is to say, you might find your way back to health and well-being without ever figuring out what the root cause was. Or if you did figure out the root cause, not being able to fully address it. Or maybe figuring out one cause and not the others. There's lots of different paths to the top of the mountain. And I've seen with the people that I've worked with that it's really important not to get stuck in an exclusive root cause approach. And to remember that big changes in our life are often the result of many small changes. And we don't always even need to know the cause or or to be able to address it completely to be able to make progress. So that's where this distinction between pleiotropy and root cause come into it for me. Now, one thing that often comes up when I talk about this to patients and other people in my life is this objection of, okay, well, are you just telling us that we should give up? You know, like we shouldn't really even think about finding the root cause and trying to address it. And if we can't address it, should we, you know, or it's been hard to address it, should we just stop trying entirely? No, that's not what I'm saying. And I think acceptance and submission are two very different responses that are easy to confuse. So my understanding of acceptance is just recognizing what is true in each moment and that's it. Just being honest with ourselves about what is in each moment and it doesn't mean anything about the past or the future. We could recognize something to be true present in the present moment and then in that next moment we could work to make that thing different. Um, and that's still acceptance. Submission is giving up, you know, submitting to something and essentially projecting into the future, that thing into the future, that it will always be that way and there's, there's nothing we can do. And it really is kind of a razor's edge, but it's an important one because I believe that acceptance really is a precondition to making change in our life because if we don't recognize what is true we we cannot respond appropriately so the term responsibility is is quite a literal term when you think about it it mean it it really just means our ability to respond so if we're going to have an ability to respond we have to be clear-eyed about what it is that is happening and what we're responding to. So, um, you know, as we talk about root causism versus pleiotropy and health as a process rather than an outcome and health being more than just the absence of symptoms or disease, what I'm saying here is that we are just being truthful with ourselves about what is. And 
from there, we're free to make whatever choice that we want. We can continue, you know, we can move towards trying to find the root cause and addressing that, or we can move towards a more pleiotropic approach, or we can do what I think is the best approach for most people is, is a blend of the two. And that's, you know, one of the ways of doing that is, is zooming in and zooming out, which I'm going to talk about in a moment here. But I want to, co- I just want to at least touch on a, a final concept here before I start sharing some of the tools that I've developed over the years for for working with um, a difficult issue and finding joy in the midst of challenging circumstances. And that is that we're part of an ecosystem. So we have a tendency, especially in our culture, I think, in the West, to believe that pain and illness and suffering are purely individual. Um, If we're sick, you know, so many of my patients and and myself included uh, earlier on believe that it's their fault that they're sick. There must be something wrong with us. We're to blame in some way for what happened. And there's a, often a tremendous amount of guilt and shame that accompany some uh, you know, chronic illness or, or any kind of difficult circumstances that we might find ourselves in. And you know, there's a tendency for us to blame ourselves or take credit for everything that goes wrong and to not take credit for anything that goes right. Uh, that must just be us. I think that's part of our negativity bias as human beings. And it's something that's really kind of hardwired into us, into our brains. And it helped us survive in a natural environment because we were always scanning for threats and challenges. And our ancestors who were success, more successful in doing that were the ones that passed their, their genes on to us. But it's a limited view, and I, I don't think it's accurate in most cases. We are part of an ecosystem that is extremely complex in in most situations. And so what happens to us is often influenced by our context and environment and the ecosystem in which we find ourselves. So let me give you a couple of examples. One would be, um, let's say you have a mold-related illness. I've worked with many patients over the years who've struggled with this. I, I struggle with it myself. Um, we had a, a pretty serious mold problem in a house we lived in many years ago, and it actually caused health issues for my entire family. Um, so I know about this firsthand, and it's pretty obvious, I think, in that situation that there are factors that are, you know, outside of our own individual choices and and life history that impact our health and well-being. Uh, in this case, living or working in a moldy building, being exposed to that mold, and it it goes beyond that too, because you know there may be other people who lived in that house or were exposed to that same building who didn't get sick. Well, what explains that? Often, it's maybe the gut microbiome um, or nutrient status or the existence of, of addition, other health challenges, um, you know, that pre-existed the, the mold exposure. And many of those things were not something that we had control over. For example, we might not have been breastfed as an infant, or our parents might have given us a lot of antibiotics when we were young, which disrupted our gut flora. Or maybe we were fed poor quality food when we were growing up, and that 
led to nutrient deficiencies and other problems. And, uh, or maybe we traveled overseas and got an infection that, you know, had a big impact on our gut. There's so many possibilities and we have varying levels of control ranging from none at all to a lot or total control with many of these different influences in our life, but they all kind of combine in aggregate to create the state of health and well-being that we have right now. And so that's, you know, that's an example of um, this ecosystem that we're a part of and how it influences us. Another example that's not illness-related necessarily would just be the difficult circumstances that many of us find ourselves in in the post-COVID era. And I don't mean post-COVID like COVID is gone and we never have to think about it again, but you know, we are in a different phase of this pandemic than we were in two years ago, and we're starting to see a lot of other systemic effects from the response to the pandemic and just how it affected all aspects of economic, social, political, cultural life. You know, rising inflation, supply chain issues, rising fuel costs, food costs. Um, many people are feeling really squeezed and challenged by those circumstances. And I think we can pretty safely say that nobody had any individual control or even agency in a lot of those circumstances. You know, that those are conditions that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, but that we're not in full control over. So I think that's just very important to recognize and to acknowledge um, because it frees us from the guilt, blame, and shame cycle that can make it very difficult for us to accept what is happening and to respond appropriately. Um, if, if instead we get stuck in that, you know, it's all my fault and I'm, I'm in full control idea, then we can't really respond in the way that's going to help us to move through that challenge. Okay, so I wanna talk a little bit about some of the tools that that I've developed over the years uh, in my own life again and in my work with patients for finding joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. So one is um, mindfulness meditation practice and awareness practice, um, awareness of what's happening in our lives, both internally and in ourselves and around us is, I think, a prerequisite to uh, everything that we're talking about here. Awareness is always the first step toward change. And if we can't be aware of our own thoughts, feelings, sensations, reactions, then we don't have much hope of changing them. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I've talked about mindfulness and meditation a lot. Uh, including lots of different ways to um, start a mindfulness and meditation practice. You can search on my website for that if you're interested um, and from previous podcasts. But I, I think that that is really just at the foundation of everything that I'm talking about here. Another helpful framework is this idea of zooming in and zooming out. So what I mean by this is there are times when it's totally necessary and appropriate to get really into the weeds and details of whatever challenge that we're dealing with and try to find the root cause, try to 
address that root cause if we find it. And that can lead to huge changes, huge benefits. Like the example I talked about earlier, someone who has had all kinds of GI issues and then they found out they were gluten intolerant and then removing gluten from the diet will make an enormous difference. And that's that's just a life-changing benefit. So there are times when that is really necessary and helpful and absolutely the right thing that we need to be doing. And there are also times when we need to zoom out. And what I mean by that is like softening the focus on whatever the issue is that we're dealing with and um, shifting it, like zooming out and shifting it towards some of those pleiotropic interventions, the things like, that we just know will improve our health and well-being on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, even if we don't know what's going on um, under the hood and we, you know, we can't identify that root cause. And so in my own experience over many, many years with chronic illness, I learned through the hard way and through trial and error that I had to zoom, you know, zoom out and zoom and not just stay zoomed in all the time, that that was really a prescription for suffering. Um, and it actually in, it inhibited my progress. So everybody's rhythm for zooming in and zooming out will be different depending on their circumstances. But, um, you know, I think that that's just been a helpful frame for me and for, and that I've introduced with my patients and they've gotten value out of. So I wanted to share it with you. Another concept, which you may have heard me talk about is shrinking the change. So this is, this comes out of the behavior change and coaching, uh, framework literature. And it's the idea that every big change that we want to make in our life, it's generally best to break that down into a series of small steps for lots of different reasons. One is that big changes are overwhelming and it can be really difficult for us to get our head around them. We can feel a lot of resistance and friction when we think about making big changes. But if we're able to um, break a really big change into the smallest possible increments, those smaller steps often do feel attainable. Um, they're more concrete. There's something that we can often do in a single chunk of time. And then when we are successful with those small steps, we gain confidence and momentum and that helps us carry through to the next step. And um, through that process, we find it much easier to arrive at the big change that we were looking for. And when I reflect on my own life, I see the truth of this over and over. I see how, in, how many times in my life, not just in terms of health, but in any other area of my life where these really big changes actually came about as a result of numerous small steps, sometimes steps that were so small that they barely even seemed like steps at all. So that's another really important concept um, when we're working with difficult uh, circumstances. Another one is the importance of elevating your mood. So this might not seem intuitive at first, and it, I think, is one of the things that people struggle with the most because if we're feeling sick or in pain, it can, it can feel almost impossible to elevate our mood, um, or it certainly doesn't come easily. But we know from so much research now that 
when we are able to elevate our mood, endorphins are released. And these endorphins, in addition to making us feel good, have a profound impact on the immune system. Most white blood cells, for example, in the body have receptors for endorphins. And if you're familiar with the research on um, how music, for example, or laughter or pleasure contributes to health and well-being and immune health in particular, that's that's the mechanism is that these endorphins actually stimulate uh, immune function and, and support our endocrine and, and, ner and nervous systems in ways that we, we understand to some extent now, but are only, I think, scratching the surface of understanding. So if you put this another way, feeling good turns out to be really good for you. And um, I think that's a, a really crucial concept here because it fits with this pleiotropic lens that we've been talking about where just doing things that make you feel better will improve your health regardless of what the cause of you know the symptoms or condition that you're dealing with is or what the causes are so you know what you do specifically to elevate your mood will differ from person to person i think some of the most well researched and Accessible ways to do that would be gratitude journaling, um, listening to music that you love and that elevates your mood, various forms of movement, just even taking a walk outside or dancing or sport activities, that are, especially those that are really fun. Um, so for me, like surfing and skiing are at the top of the list there, mountain biking, uh, laughter. So this could be watching funny movies, um, could even be Things, more intentional practices like laughter yoga, which kind of seems ridiculous at first, but you can really get into if you give it a shot. Um, things that actively cultivate pleasure, so getting a massage, taking a hot bath, etc. And then spending time in nature, particularly with your shoes off and just connected to the earth, I think can make a really big difference. Along the same lines, I'm a big believer in radical self-care. So what is different about radical self-care than self-care? Uh, it's, I think, just radical because um, you're really swimming upstream these days if you're making time for self-care. Um, you're, you're going against the grain, and sometimes you have to be a bit radical in your approach. So that could, that could involve giving yourself full permission uh, for self-care, micro self-care, which is kind of similar to shrinking the change we mentioned before, like... If you only have two minutes to meditate, meditate for two minutes. You will still get some benefit from that. Uh, if you only have 10 minutes to do some movement or exercise, do that. You'll still get benefit. In our culture, we have this mentality of all or nothing. And I think that actually prevents a lot of people from doing self-care throughout the day that would really help them um, because of a belief system around, you know, not like like it has to be big and long and thorough and complete, um, you know, to be worth doing. Um, lowering our expectations, you know, which kind of goes along with that, like just recognizing and accepting that it's not going to be perfect some sometimes and uh, we're, we're just going to do the best we can, but doing something is better than nothing. Um, there's a lot more to say here and I'm going to do another podcast on radical self-care at some point, but just wanted to introduce that as one of the tools that I think can be really helpful.
Okay, I've been talking for a long time. I hope this was helpful. I know it might be a kind of mindset shift for some of you and for others, it might not even be relevant at all. Um, if you're just firing on all cylinders and doing great and not feeling stuck or not, not dealing with any kind of illness or pain or challenging circumstances right now, you probably didn't make it this far and aren't listening anymore. And that's awesome. That's great. Uh, perhaps uh, someday in the future, if, if circumstances change and, and, and challenges arise, um, you might find this to be useful as well. All right, so before I finish up, I just wanted to briefly mention Adapt Live, which is our my upcoming retreat at the Snowbird Resort over Labor Day weekend, uh, Snowbird Resort in Utah in the Little Cottonwood Canyons. If you're interested in the topics that we've talked about in this episode, you, you should definitely check out this retreat. We still have a few spots left. Uh, the theme is getting unstuck, so we will be exploring many of the topics and perspectives, tools, and practices that I briefly introduced in this podcast in, in much more depth. And I'll be joined by five incredible experienced facilitators and guides, um, all people that I have been privileged to work with and know in my life uh, and in my professional career, as well as yoga, meditation, and movement instructors. Um, we're going to do a balance of activities and practices designed to help us get unstuck, um, guided meditation, movement, breakthrough sessions, uh, integration sessions, nature immersion, as well as then chances to relax, connect with fellow participants, enjoy the beautiful sound surroundings, and importantly, I think, celebrate and have fun. That's a really big, important part of getting unstuck. The space is limited to only 45 participants because I wanted to preserve a retreat-like atmosphere and create a more intimate experience. Um, as of the time of this recording, we're about 70% full, and I think by the time this podcast comes out a few weeks from now, I'd expect that to be closer to 80 to 90%. So if you would like to learn more and grab your spot, go to cresser.co slash adapt live all one word that's a d a p t l i v e and um, you can learn more about the schedule what we're going to get up to the guides um, food accommodation cost etc it's crestor.co slash adapt live and it'll be an amazing chance to come together as a community um, with this higher purpose and uh, really look forward to seeing those of you who've already signed up and if you can Join us and you're drawn to this. We'd love to have you there. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions in to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. And we'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.